0: Session with Dr. Good evening, welcome to In Session. I'm your host, Dr. Fadid Halakwi, and I'll be with you for the next hour here on Radio Hamra. Uh, On Instagram Live for the show, you can follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show or suggest topics or books for the program. And the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and podcast on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Let's get to the books of the week. The book for this week is How You Say It by Catherine D. Kinsler. How You Say It, Why You Talk the Way You Do and What It Says About You. Um, looking forward to reading that book and sharing it with you um, next Monday's show. I ordered a few books recently um, that are all uh, books that are just coming out, so looking forward to reading some of those. Sometimes I feel like I'm ordering books like they're uh, Jordans or New Pairs of Shoes coming out because I get excited to read them as soon as I can. Um, but looking forward to reading this one, How You Say It by Catherine D. Kinsler, uh, and have some upcoming ones as well. The book of the week from last week that I will talk about tonight was a very, very interesting book, and it's titled, Why We Believe by Agustin Fuentes. Why We Believe, Evolution, and the Human Way of Being. And this was a really, really fascinating book that, it's one of those books that makes you, it forces you in a way to take a step back to think, what is it that makes us human? And also forces you to, to take a, a different look at things that we might take for granted. We might just not even recognize we believe, as he discusses in the book, believing is so much a part of what makes us human, part of our, our niche, you could say, as he describes in the book. So a fish is in water and it doesn't know that it's really in water. Um, similarly, we as humans, as he describes that same analogy in the book, we don't really realize how much belief is a part of our life and our part of our way of being actually. Now, he he describes in the book that often people will look at what we believe. Things like religion very often become the study of that. And he does talk about religion in the book uh, and even being religious. Um, But this book also looks at evolutionarily, why do we believe? How has that become a part of what humans do? So um, I really enjoyed the book in that sense that it gives you an understanding of how belief even makes sense. What does it even mean to believe and why it is that we as humans do it so much and might not even realize that we do. So it takes us through an evolutionary exploration, even looking at other animals, something like culture. We tend to think of culture as a human attribute but actually other species have culture as well other animals Um, and culture is one of these interesting things where we just think it's something on the outside and it affects us but it's a uh, co-evolving type of a thing with things like culture, things that we do, patterns of doing things, because the more we do things a certain way or the ways that we learn to do things, that can affect us. And he shares about orcas, killer whales, and how different groups in different areas will hunt and or do things in slightly different ways. There isn't exactly one way to do it, but that the ways that these orcas will do hunting in certain areas will actually over time Uh, lead to how they evolve physically. So it'll physically impact their bodies and how they uh, change over time as far as generations go. And so similarly, we see that human culture has affected us as much as we've affected culture. So it's something that we co-create. And we can see this Uh, in various aspects of life. But looking at humans, uh, and as he describes, uh, you know, human-like creatures, hominins, existed two million years ago. And so we've been around in that sense, our ancestors, for a long time. Of course, even before that, our lineage goes back further, but really looking at human-like animals or beings, existed roughly two million years ago. And he shares how our development has created Uh, has led to this point where belief was possible a long time ago um, in ways that this might be able to be observed and how that this has affected us. Now, of course, looking at belief in history, if we're looking in an anthropological sense or looking in an archaeological perspective, it it could be a lot harder to understand. We can't know really what someone was thinking hundreds of thousands of years ago of course even like right now we can't really know what an animal is thinking sometimes we try to do that but if we look at just fossils or different uh, things that remain it's hard to know what these beings were thinking but he does share evidence things like for example art or we look at cave paintings that's some type of a representation of something i have to be showing what i'm thinking if I'm doing cave art or even for example they find etchings on um, bones a cow bone uh, of course a non-domesticated cow I heard him saying in a speech making that emphasis but if we look at there's etchings in that which shows something something was being done we are somehow creating something that's in our mind um, in a non-material way and putting it onto this material object and essentially that's what we are looking at when we look at belief, or when we look at also what he describes as transcendental experiences, which are experiences that are beyond the material, beyond what we can see. Um, Things like experiencing awe. When you, for example, see a forest in front of you, and are amazed at how vast and big it is, and overwhelmed with this feeling, we talk about Ah. awe now one thing I should note here from you is really fascinating reading this book earlier on talking about other animals he was sharing the experiences of some primates they've attached cameras to them for example to see what they're seeing essentially and what we observe is that sometimes they seem to look at a beautiful image like a landscape image and stare at it for a while when really there doesn't seem to be any functional um need for that, this primate, this ape, let's say, I forgot exactly what kind of primate it was. It's not benefiting, but it stayed for even a few minutes, I believe it was, looking at this incredible landscape, which in a way seems to be evidence, not clear evidence, but maybe a sign that there's some valuing of that beauty or taking it in or that awe that it's looking at this beautiful view when it's in the midst of doing something functional. So I thought that was quite interesting. But in human beings, we see, of course, a much stronger sense of this. And so we're looking at our evolution, how we evolved to both our sociality being with one another, our brains expanding or becoming bigger, I shouldn't say expanding, but as our our brains evolved as well. And again, all of this is a co-evolution because then even we look at as our brains evolved, we were able to do things like discover fire. Exactly when that was is not clear, but it's, I forgot exactly, maybe more than a hundred thousand years ago, but don't quote me on that number. But in the book, he describes a range of when that's likely possible. And with that, it also allowed for us to get more nutrition from foods to then cook foods in ways that allowed it easier for us to get more um, calories. And I've read in other books how cooking actually is likely to have led for us to be able to have more calories to even sustain larger brains, because we know that our brains disproportionately take up more of the calories of our overall bodies that would be by weight. So we need more calories in more efficient ways to be able to take care of our ourselves or to be able to nourish that. So we see that there's coevolution in lots of ways. It's not just survival of the fittest man or some being against nature, but the ways that we affect our surroundings will have effects on us and so when we think about humans we are still evolving in that sense as we continue to uh, evolve in some ways devolve our environment with some of the things that we are doing but we are evolving within that context as well so as we develop in our brains and we start to even have social interactions become more prominent what we also start to see happening is our ability to imagine things that are not here in many ways. Now, he might not explain it exactly in this way, but especially when we look at counterfactuals, I forgot his wording for this. But the fact is, human beings, we can predict things about our future. And to me, it's interesting when we think about predicting our future. Now, I might think about waking up tomorrow morning. Um, And of course, it's based on what I've experienced in my past, but in some ways it is a creative process and some part of it is unknown. I'm imagining tomorrow morning based on my experiences and I might prepare for tomorrow morning in different ways or in similar ways. Our ancestors might have, let's say, prepared for the winter, knowing from past winters or knowing from previous generations, sharing this knowledge with the other generations that in the winter it gets cold and certain foods let's say might not be available so we need to prepare for that winter and so it does take some amount of imagination to be able to predict the future And in this way, um, but he didn't get into anxiety in this book, but even something like worrying or anxiety, we can see how it's coupled with imagination or intertwined with our experience of imagination. Because when someone is anxious, it's almost like they are in hyperdrive, able to think about, unfortunately, the negative things that can happen. So when I work with individuals with anxiety, sometimes you see that what they're thinking about isn't fake or even what we'd consider not real they might worry about something happening that it is possible for it to happen Uh, but they might be obsessed with it or the likelihood of that happening is likely what we might consider too much or too big that it can interfere with their functioning so they might think of all the things that can go wrong which in some ways can be a good thing And that's why, for example, people who are anxious might be good at something like accounting, where they can be very particular about not missing any mistakes, or might be good at being, uh, let's say, a dentist, people who have obsessive compulsive personalities will be very careful not to miss any small thing which can be beneficial in those ways and some aspects of that might have been beneficial to our ancestors or certain members of our ancestors in order to survive so to me it's interesting looking at how our possibility for predicting the future And imagining the future is tied into imagination and creativity as well. And this is why, so often, when we look at different aspects of being human or our psychology, we sometimes think, well, anxiety is just bad, we got to get rid of it. But we can recognize that it's actually part of. Um, larger aspects of being human or in our psychology some of which are very healthy and necessary and we need to survive and really almost any kind of mental illness or mental anguish at times is going to be an exaggeration of something very healthy or at least some aspect of something that is healthy that is getting in the way so we see that humans have this um, tendency to be able to to predict the future Or think about things or imagine things that are not in their material present, what they're actually experiencing. So usually we can just, we think of a more basic ways. We just have the things in front of us, the ways that we can express things with using things. Um, But now we can imagine things slowly. We became more able to do this along with capabilities of language, which also started to develop. And based on the archaeological record, we can see when this started to become likely to happen where um, physiologically we could create language vo- with the vocal apparatus that is necessary and also mentally those aspects of the brain likely developed or the ways it was necessary, they, they became more apparent. So this also can accelerate this process of sharing beliefs or communicating things to one another and expressing and experiencing these things. And then if we look at the religious aspects in particular, but in overall looking at this issue of belief with the transcendental, as he was, as I was mentioning before, transcendence is essentially this experience of things that we can't Uh, quite understand or describe. And I think this is interesting because what we can't understand or describe does change over time. For example, as we understood um, stars and planets, we are now able to explain things that maybe our ancestors, even just a not that long ago but of course thousands of years ago would not be able to explain and so those experiences or at least our observations or sensations might be more explainable or the weather we still can't predict it exactly but we have a much better understanding of what we did, that we did before so we can understand in previous generations or our ancestors would have to imagine certain ways of understanding that, that now we can understand a bit better with our observations, uh, with science. He does talk a, a bit about science and actually how we have to be careful of how we even look at science. I might touch on that later as well. But we can understand things better, which might change that. Even our emotions, we can start to understand better. So something you feel that then you can't really comprehend the why, and you might come up with some explanation of what you're feeling, we can start to understand it better. And that can actually shift even what we might consider what we can't understand. But overall, to conclude in this segment, and I'll talk more about the book after the break, we can see that this tendency to believe, um, or maybe it's not even a tendency, but it's such a big aspect of human life and and in the book he touches on three key areas on it to give a further exploration and explanation Uh, those three are um, religion economics or economies and love and i'll talk about those after the break but we can see as he describes that it's big a big part of the essence of being human involves our ability capability and tendencies of believing and sharing beliefs together which can have big impacts After the break, I'll talk a bit about that and those three uh, different aspects that he gets into. All right, you're listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Delaqui. We'll be right back. Welcome back. So continuing the discussion on the book, Why We Believe by Augustine Fuentes, uh, as I mentioned at the top of the show, really, really fascinating book. Uh, Dr. Fuentes is an anthropologist. And actually, um, these uh, this book was based on a series of Gifford lectures he did a few years ago. I think it was in 2018. Uh, and um, Gifford lectures, you might have remembered, I did a book about, by Carl Sagan last year that was based on his Gifford lectures. So, um, you know, he's following in some good. Footsteps, both in doing the lectures, but also which is, uh, you know, he was invited to do them, and I think he very deservedly to give his take on things, but also I'm glad he turned it into this book that I, I got to enjoy myself. So I hope you will read "Why We Believe" by Augustine Fuentes: Evolution in the Human Way of Being, and that kind of subtext or subtitle there um, does explain that as part of our way of being, as I was mentioning in the previous uh, previous segment. That being human it's a lot of it is about belief and because as we, he describes in the book we are born um, compared to almost all other animals but even other mammals and primates humans are born very altricial or helpless and continue a lot of our development in a way you can say when a, a, we have a newborn we are dealing with the fourth trimester where we're still developing we are helpless for a long time but through that we also take in a lot, not just physically, of course, through milk and touch and all of that, but we observe a lot in the people. Um, around us. And it starts to become part of our beliefs and our understandings in ways that we aren't even aware that we take on. Uh, And I think this is so interesting and important. Uh, Last year, when I talked about the the book Seven and a Half Lessons About the Brain by Lisa Feldman Barrett, when she talked about how our brains create a shared reality or in a social way, we create a, a shared reality. I think it's very important and it relates to beliefs because sometimes we don't realize things that we have created as a belief, and we take them as natural or a part of life. Because when something is inst- is instilled in us from a very young age, or even repetitively and made to seem very, very important, we take it to mean so much that it feels like it is naturally just the way it is. And this even is part of what takes place with things like race and racism, where when people have certain beliefs that have been instilled from thousands of repetitions of certain either messages they've been told or um, things they've heard, and especially if they're laden with emotional feeling, people passionately shared something with them, we can start to feel we're seeing just what are natural differences, let's say, between races uh, or between different groups of people, when really we know that the differences genetically between us. Um, He had a great quote. I hope I can find it. Um, But really, the differences between us genetically are very, very small as human beings. Even different uh, apes will show different, uh, have more genetic differences. I won't be able to find it, but essentially what he said was, I think it was chimpanzees in East Africa and Central Africa will genetically be more different than human beings all over the world, which I thought was quite... Um, interesting. When people think human beings, we might think we are so different or we might assume we are so different. Um, clearly, that is not the case. I thought that was really fascinating. So I won't be able to find that. And I wish I'd made a marker of that. Um, but something very, very interesting. But we think we're so different. And we test it seems so real that, for example, skin color is so important. But skin color is, in a way, a belief that we've made important. It's not necessarily based on some kind of reality that we um, it has to be something significant so this tendency to believe is very human it's the way we make sense of the world the way we make sense of our lives it's related to meaning and having meaning in different senses um looking at you know different ways that belief has affected us he goes into three major aspects or three different ways uh, that he looks Um, more deeply at how belief affects us. And those three, as I mentioned before, are religion, uh, economics uh, and or economies and love. So the religion section was very interesting. He doesn't go into specific religions to say if religions are true or not true. Uh, That was not his goal. And he even thinks that that's really not something we can really debate or understand. But um, you know, there was one subheading that I thought was really interesting that helps explain some of this mindset about uh, about religion. So it says, imagination—that ability to imagine—leads to beliefs, leads to religiousness, which leads to religions, or has led to. We can say religions. So imagination is our ability to think about things beyond our here and now experience like i said thinking about the future thinking about a future that doesn't even exist which is part of what anxiety also can be is that we think of something that hasn't happened but also that imagination can allow for good i can see a problem and imagine a solution in the future so it's not obviously a bad thing only but so imagination leads to the possibility of belief to have a belief about things and understanding for example that there is a god that affects this world or has created this world also we can see that our Um, understandings of things like storytelling come into play as well. But nonetheless, that that imagination leads to the possibility of belief, which then leads to religiousness, which being religious is different than religion. Um, I think sometimes people now, if they don't identify with a specific religion, will sometimes use the word spiritual to mean what he might in this book talk about being religious as opposed to religions. So our capacity as human beings to be religious, which means to have these experiences um, not of the here and now, um, but that give us some kind of a feeling, uh, then could lead to the appearance or the spread of religions or for religions to exist, these institutions or that are based on some kind of doctrine or institution that then can uh, encapsulate these uh, possibilities to be religious. So it, it's an interesting understanding or looking at how religion has developed. He doesn't think that religions developed to help control people, which is sometimes the big God um, explanation or that there has to be some uh, punishment in a supernatural way or after we die. He, you know, he describes religion and our Humanity is co-evolving in that way as well. Another way that humans have have co-evolved with our culture can be expressed in this way. So it's not that um, people were not able to cooperate before the major world religions; they were able to do that. Um, but that this you can see religions came about in the ways that we see them more recently in the last eight thousand or twelve thousand years. But we know that they existed before, not necessarily in the ways we see it now but this tendency to be religious um, seems very likely. For example, you see even, I think going back more than 100,000 years, burials where, for example, human bodies were buried or bodies like humans, that might not have been exactly our ancestors, but buried in ways that seem to have some kind of ceremony or some kind of symbolism to it, for example, being buried with an axe that was not used so it seems that it was created just for this purpose or being put somewhere that's very hard to get to inside a cave um, several many kilometers i believe deep or hard to get to uh this shows that there's something some type of sense that maybe of an afterlife or some significance so burials is one way that we can look in the past of course we can never know what they were thinking or exactly what the symbolism was but there seems to be something beyond because we can see there's no um, material benefit about burying a body so far deep in a cave so there seems to be some kind of symbolic reason why this was Was done. Maybe there's some sense of a sacred or some sense of an afterlife um, that was there. So we can see that that's not something new. Now, he also talks about economies. That's another interesting one. I I thought it was quite fascinating his discussion looking at economies because when we look at economics, this is is another area where people look at the free markets and capitalism and they tend to think there's something natural about this, and even actually a Darwinian type of survival of the fittest, which means that it's just natural to have the kind of inequality that we have. And he discusses how for most of human history, we lived in much more egalitarian types of um, economies, if you want or not even economies, but um, societies. Egalitarian meaning more equal. Now, this doesn't mean exactly equal, and this goes back to this whole idea of uh, equality and opportunity versus equality of outcomes, it doesn't mean everyone has to be exactly the same, but the types of inequality we have now, which many people think of as natural, that you just have to have this degree of inequality, is not even a big part of our human history. It does seem to have become more possible once we had things like agriculture and then the storage Of excesses of let's say food and supplies which then meant that some people had to watch the food and supplies or had to be in charge of distributing but slowly this opened up pathways to inequality but this mindset that we have now especially in a capitalist type of society that inequalities are just reflective of something very natural Uh, is really, to me, always doesn't make sense, but especially the degrees that we have it. And so for a lot of people, because they think of markets as so natural, um, they tend to think, well, we can't intervene in any way. And Adam Smith was a very great thinker. And so people use his arguments, sometimes even not quite looking at the whole scope of all of his thoughts but to say well yeah there's an invisible hand so you can't do anything to you know adjust things or you should not interfere in any way everyone ask acting in their best self interest will lead to Um, Outcomes that make sense for everyone but this is not the case if we don't interfere uh, we already do interfere to begin with but if you just leave it completely unchecked in that way uh, it doesn't lead to fair and just outcomes and it's not based on some type of nature that is being expressed which i think it's quite important to look at that there's beliefs we have about the economy that make it so that we believe it as some truth that we then think it's somehow natural but we have to be aware of how things that might seem so real in the sense that we believe them to be completely true they not aren't necessarily so it's just the ways that we have done things and done things only recently for maybe even a few Hundred years in some of the ways that we look at the markets. Um, And on top of that, there's so much that we already do. I think it's interesting when people say, you can't do anything. Well, we already have ways that we tax people and we've set percentages for these things. So obviously, there's things that we do that might be different for different, let's say, uh, levels of income that we accept. So, this mindset that you can't touch anything, everything runs best when we don't interfere, I think is a little bit. Ludicrous and doesn't really look at the actual knowledge and information. And so being aware that we have beliefs about economies that are not based on something that's just natural or real, but it's beliefs that we've created. And again, once we share a belief long enough or it seems so real, it seems to reflect something natural, but it doesn't mean it actually does. And speaking of beliefs that seem so natural but necessarily are not, Lastly, he comes to love. Um, Now, love, it's one of those things, you know, even we have all these words for love, like uh, in love, in relationships, love for a partner, maternal love, paternal love. And and there's all these different ways we talk about it in the sense that it makes it seem again, very real. Um, He does talk about how what likely we think of as love is our capacity for compassion which seems to have become even more in humans than other beings because, as I mentioned, we have our young who are born so helpless that is likely one aspect of it. And we're social beings that are interdependent and need one another to survive before even maybe more literally, but even still in other ways as well, that it's this sense of compassion that's extended also to what we would call pair bonds, which doesn't have to just be between, as he describes it, pair bonding isn't just the male and female uh, in a romantic way of procreating and, and creating a family it could be even between individuals that could have a non-sexual type of relationship um, that can be between two individuals that bond which might be likely related to our tendency for attachment which again goes back to that idea that we are dependent for so long when we are born on our caregivers, that we have this psychological, um, neurological, or in our brain, so many things physiological is going on to create this bond of attachment, because it is so important for us to do that, and that this is likely what extends in other ways to our experiences of compassion, or what we think of as love. But then, you know, with the ways that history has demonstrated love or we can say artists singers songwriters movies we now have these conceptions about loves about love that is much more a belief based on something we've created than something that is necessarily natural so even thinking of monogamy as natural, it's more complicated than that. A lot of us want to just think of it as just a natural thing because maybe it feels better, which has a lot of um, potential reasons for it, but our understandings of love, it's important to recognize that it's not just based on reality purely or some kind of nature, but there's a lot more that goes into even our conceptions and our beliefs about love. Uh, even he didn't talk about soulmates, for example, in the book, but that's something I've talked about on the show or even working with clients. That sometimes people think, well, there's a soulmate and I'm going to f- meet this person and everything is going to be perfect and we live happily ever after once I find that person. And actually this belief to me can be very costly because it creates these myths about what you're going to experience with a partner, which might be very, very, or I think are unrealistic. And another aspect of, of soulmates quickly, just a caveat that I think is important is when I've worked with some people and I see they believe in soulmates, you also see that it's not just that they believe everything is going to be so good. There's also this other negative side where they think that no matter what I do to this relationship and to my partner, I'm going to keep it because it's a soulmate. It's destined by God or destined by the world or the universe or whatever it might be. And I think that's very dangerous because we have to recognize that any relationship is actually a very delicate thing. It's like a living being that if you don't take care of it, it dies. Or if you hurt it, it's going to die. So if we have this Mindset or this belief that there's a soulmate and that if I find that soulmate, then everything is just happily ever after and I I don't have to worry about anything I think it's actually quite dangerous when it comes to relationships, but coming back to the book, you know talks about how um, beliefs are so important and so much a part of being human and I was very touched by the last um, paragraph of the book So I'll just share that with you as I conclude my thoughts. So he writes, Philosopher Simone de Beauvoir once said, one's life has value so long as one attributes value to the life of others by means of love, friendship, indignation and compassion, end quote. The major way we attribute value is via belief. And I hope that we can better direct our shared beliefs and values to imagine, hope for, And create a better future so our beliefs can be very good and beautiful of course beliefs have also led to some of the worst action that humans have taken Uh, the opposite of that love and feeling connected and feeling like someone is part of you or feeling connected to them is to also imagine that there are some that are not you it creates a feeling of us versus them me or we versus them which can also create to horrible things but I do think that we can create and be aware of shared beliefs that can hope for a better future or create a better future when our beliefs are steeped in values that we can recognize as being good we can go towards a, a better future with those beliefs but first we have to recognize that we have beliefs even as the book is titled why we believe to begin with as humans but also how we can create ones that are better for us in our future so i really loved this book why we believe by augustine fuentes let's go to our last commercial break we'll be right back <music> Welcome back. Uh, so, you know, in the first two segments, I discussed the book Why We Believe by Augustine Fuentes. And in this last segment, I wanted to, in a way, change gears, talk about a movie that I saw yesterday that I've been meaning to see for a while, but that in some ways relates to belief. Um, so it's in some ways stays within that theme, for in some ways. But I uh, watched the book Soul, or sorry, I watched the movie Soul. Um, on disney it's a pixar movie and i'd heard about it for a while and i hadn't seen it and i checked it out And pixar movies they almost always are very good they they put a lot of time and effort into the story and all aspects of it and the animations are amazing seeing what they do so really did uh enjoy the movie i'll say this um I did I enjoyed the movie. And so let me I'll give you some ideas of the premise. But the premise is essentially see this this man, was his name? Joe? I don't remember his name now. Something like that. But he was a teacher, music teacher, but also wanted to be a musician. And we see what happens is that it seems like he falls and he's gonna die. And his soul is going to the quote, afterlife or the I don't know, it was the beyond, something like that. But he doesn't want to go and he comes back. A- and I had some um a hard time sometimes following I feel like there was some logical inconsistencies and he went back to the before. So there was the great beyond and the great before, I think was what it was called. And the great before is essentially where all these souls, they're kind of like baby souls, are getting ready to go into the world, and then they're going to be essentially, I think, matched with a person and be that person's soul. Um, but sometimes it didn't quite make sense exactly these things. Now I know you shouldn't get too caught up in the logical consistency of a movie like this, where it's going into some pretty metaphysical type of things. But anyway, so that part was a little bit, um, for me confusing, but then you see this exploration of this person looking at his own life. Um, so there's things about the meaning of life. And then of course things about, you know, we talk about beliefs as I was talking about in the book today. This belief of having a soul what does that even mean um and that we each have our soul uh and 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 so on and and so it it was interesting i i recommend it as an interesting movie so looking at some of my thoughts on it what i also saw was when they looked at the souls really what it seemed like they were talking about in a lot of ways was their personality so in one part kind of to be funny it's like okay you five are going to be insecure you four are going to be self self absorbed and it would push them into this area to go through almost like seemingly like a training or a camp type of a thing um and so it seemed like they were talking more about a personality than a soul whatever that, that means um so to speak so that that to me was one thing that was kind of interesting now and what i the the issue i had with that or what that brings up is is our, even personality, let's say, you know, it's hard to say what a soul is. Uh, Maybe I'll talk about some thoughts on that aspect. But what does it mean uh, to say our personality? Is it predestined? And definitely there does seem to be a considerable amount um, of our personalities that are genetic. But I don't think, of course, that's the whole picture. Now, I'm a psychologist. So, of course, I'm looking at how you're Raised, your upbringing, and how that affects you, and and of course that is itself um, a lot of unpredictability and what that that looks like in that relationship. But I do think our environment, of course, has a big impact. I've seen some, you know, statistics, things like 50% is genetic, 50% is your environment. Now some people say that 50% it's not just any kind of environment, but things that are unpredictable. That's something that I was reading. I do think, of course, things that we experience in our lives have impacts on our personalities, but it's hard to say exactly how much and in what ways that is. I think as parents, you have a big impact on your children in what you do and you don't do, the type of love you show them. Uh, But it's a very complex type of interaction, and actually, it reminds me of the. In this book, where I was talking about things co evolving, parents and their kids, there's a sense of co evolution too, because you might do the same parenting to two different kids who have two different dispositions, and it might end with two very different results because of that. If you have, let's say, an anxious mom and she has a child, one of them is not that anxious, and the other one is very anxious, the one who is not very anxious might get affected less by the anxious mom. The one who is anxious, there might be almost like this runaway kind of experience of the mom's anxiety makes the kid more anxious. The child being more anxious might act out, making the mom more anxious in how she interacts with that child or more uh, reactive, and the child might become more anxious. So we can see this kind of interplay. And so even when we look at nature versus nurture in things like personality or upbringing, we see that it's a very dynamic interplay because it's not just like your nature doesn't affect how you're nurtured. How a child is is going to affect how the parents respond and react to that child as well, creating a type of an interplay, a co-evolution, so to speak, that can affect both individuals, but so that it'll actually affect the way the child is raised. And, And you get to see this firsthand when you work with families. Parents will tell you how we did the same thing with both kids and we got different results. And of course, some of that's because the kids genetically are different, but then also it's because the child being different it's going to lead to different reactions to what the parents do so i think being a parent is the most challenging role we can have in life and then when you have multiple kids that even becomes more difficult because first of all trying to make them first uh, that them both feel loved equally or if it's more than two for them all to feel loved equally is very challenging but then they're going to ask different things so it's not like oh i've had a, a 3 year old before so I, I know how to raise the second baby when they're 3 it's going to be a different experience and you have to be ready for that so the way you nurture the child, kind of in a way, pun intended, but the way you nurture your child has to be tailored to their nature as well. Or you have to be aware of that. It's not a one size fits all um, for how you raise your kids. Exactly. There are some techniques. There are definitely some values that I think are important to keep in mind, but there isn't necessarily one right way to do it. Now, this last few minutes of the show, I'll talk about the title of the movie was Soul, and of course, I'm not going to tell you, I'm going to explain to you what a soul actually is. Um, We have experiences that we might say are a little bit more complicated than what we can explain, that can feel, as I was talking about in the book, transcendental. What, What am I feeling right now? I can't quite put my finger on it. But when I think about soul in the way the movie presented it, which also talked about personality, I think of also how we think of one another and how we experience one another. And the way I think of soul in that way, or really when we sometimes think of the essence of a person, let's say you think about your mother or your father or a family member or a friend or a spouse, what you experience is a feeling about that person, right? So you say your grandmother and you have a feeling that is not let's say their soul per se but to me what i call that is like an emotional signature or i might think of a better type of word for that emotional fingerprint maybe but some kind of emotional signature that is unique and when we think about feelings we tend to think feelings are happy sad angry surprised uh, afraid um and those are ways of of categorizing feelings, but really essentially we could say there's an infinite amount of feelings that we can experience to the, to the extent that really never have you felt exactly the same thing twice in your lifetime, because it is so much going on to each thing that you feel. You might even, you know, I'll I'll give a quick example, kind of different, but has a similar feeling. I remember this is probably close to 20 years ago. I took an exam at school. I pulled an all nighter and kind of as a reward, I went and bought a CD. So that tells you how long ago it was. And it was the I Am Sam soundtrack, uh, which was I Am Sam was beautiful movie, very emotional movie. If you've seen it, you know, I cried so much watching it. And then I put the, the CD in and I think the first song was... Um, I think it's called Across the Universe. They're all covers of Beatles songs. Across the Universe by, I think it's Rufus Wainwright. And I remember I'm listening to the song driving home. I hadn't, I think I literally hadn't slept, pulled an all nighter. And I'm listening to the song and I just start crying when I'm listening to the song. And I was like, this is such a beautiful song. And I was crying and get home, sleep, I remember. And then the next day I'm like, oh, let me hear that song again. And I thought I was going to just start crying again, but I didn't. I still thought the song was beautiful. I still think it's a nice song. I actually haven't heard it for a long time. I probably will listen to it in the car on the ride home now that I've been talking about it. But I didn't cry. Not because the song changed, of course, but because I was in a different state. And because I was in a different state, when you're sleep deprived, you're more emotionally, you're just more emotional in general, generally speaking. And so I felt more, I felt it in a different way and I emoted in that way. I cried, I felt something. And so, but it was an interesting experience. I remember I was like, oh, I'm about to cry. And then I didn't. And I was a little bit confused. So that's a way of recognizing that we might even experience the same things you but you'll likely feel something different for so many reasons you're in a different state of mind um, and then of course if you're interacting with people so many things happen i was imagining you know uh, partners who've been together for a long time they might have a sense of when they hug one another but no two hugs are probably going to feel exactly the same to them in an exact way because of so many factors that go into that so this kind of was in a way a sidetrack but comes back to this idea of this essence we have when we think of people which to me is like their soul is the way they make us feel so uh, i know we usually think of soul as something that's within each individual but in this way we can see that the soul in this kind of definition is our experience of each individual so our soul in that way resides within each person we interact with or or You know have a relationship with that's our soul so your soul you can feel for example whether they're alive or dead you're you're a family members soul because if you think of them look at a picture hear their voice something it it brings back that feeling that you have that is them that's the thing when you think grandma grandpa mom dad you you have a feeling an experience and of course the the picture might bring it up even more because now you're remembering what you felt in their presence or you hear their voice it can have that experience and so in that way i think that our soul is what we share with one another and how we make other people feel in that way that is kind of like a soul and this is why You know, I didn't think of it this way till right now, but I'll share this thought. Hopefully it'll make sense. When we think of life after death, we can't really know that. No one could claim to really know. But there's a way that we have life after death that we can make people feel things after our death because of how we made them feel when we were alive. So if your mother or father has died, they are gone physically, but emotionally you still carry them with you and you emotionally carry how they made you feel and the feelings they bring up for you. So in that way, they have a life after death and how you emotionally experience them. And this is why even if someone dies, your relationship with them doesn't end, which I know it doesn't mean in this way of like ghosts or anything like that. And maybe even that's some of why we think of things like ghosts is because we can still feel them. You can still emotionally experience what it was like to be around that person. But if they're physically not there, then we tell ourselves, oh, it's their ghost is here. But it doesn't mean their ghost is there. Their soul or spirit in that way is there, like I was defining it or describing it, in that you are emotionally experiencing that emotional signature for you of that person, which makes you feel them. So you do feel their presence, but it doesn't mean that there has to be a ghost or any other explanation. It could be that you still feel them and feeling them even once they're gone is not something unhealthy or makes you crazy. It just means that you still have internalized that experience and that relationship with them in a sense that makes it so they still do exist in your experience. You can think about them and feel them. You can imagine what would my loving grandfather say right now if I needed a consoling word. And you might imagine and you've created that. We know we've internalized people's voices which becomes our inner voice overall. But to me, the essence of our soul it's this way, our essence, our way of being. But to me, it could be interesting to think of it not as something that resides within us, but it resides in the ways we make other people feel. And hopefully that also inspires us and reminds us to be mindful of that soul in the way that we make others feel by the ways that we treat them, the ways that we interact with them, the kindness and the compassion that we show them. All right, that brings us to the end of tonight's show. A big thank you to Amir here in the studio. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Dalaqui. Have a wonderful night.